So last week, if you were here, we asked the question, the same question I'm going to ask this week, which is, why does Brett wear scarves? Um, uh, I got you guys. I got you guys. That was good. Uh, because they're fabulous. What I mean by fabulous is they're warm. Okay, I get cold. People make fun of me. My wife makes them. They keep me warm. Okay, um, so the question that we're asking is not why does Brett wear scarves? Though that is a valid question, which I just answered. So some of the tension was just resolved. But the question we are asking is how does God bring about this peace that he has been promising in the book of Isaiah? He's been talking about this future that's coming. Right, he's talking about this future where there'll be no more tears, right? There'll be no more mourning. We see this in, uh, really all the way through Isaiah, these different promises that are, are given to us. You think about Isaiah 11, we have that picture. Go ahead and put that first slide up, right? That first slide, the one with the lion and the lamb there. So you see that graphic, the lion and the lamb graphic? Pretty slick, right? I, I, I like it. Um, I'm biased. I, I made it. But um, So that's one of our core identity graphics, and that's really from this concept from Isaiah 11, right, where you have the the wolf and the lamb, the lion and the lamb, the the child who lays over the and plays in the adder's den, right? This picture that there's an animosity that has been removed. There's a peacefulness about our existence that is coming. And so the question we asked last week is, how does God bring that about? How does God go about bringing peace? And so we get the answer to that in Isaiah 63. So go ahead and flip with us to Isaiah chapter 63, We're going to reread the section that we began with last week. Very not controversial or offensive text at all. Um, But we're going to reread that and we're going to kind of unpack. Last week we started to unpack that. We kind of slowly walked through it. It's one of these passages in Scripture that really kind of makes you pause and go, man, what's going on here? So just to set the stage real briefly, you have Isaiah in 740 B.C., who is now finishing up his 66th chapter book, right? We're in chapter 63, so we're only a few chapters away from finishing. We'll actually finish out uh, most of 64 today. And so what's happening is, is he is telling God's people who are in captivity about the future that they have ahead. And so he's telling them what is to come. And so as he paints that picture, which we get a little bit of that picture today, today we get last week's image, right, of this wrath picture, and then today we get the response to that, where basically Isaiah is interacting with that imagery from the beginning of 63. Let me pray for us. This is one of those passages, last week when I preached this, both services, you could have heard a pin drop, right? It was just like, what do we do with this? What do we do with this, right? So let me pray for us. We'll dive into our text, and then we'll see how God brings about this peace, this rest, this reconciliation that he's been talking about. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we, we need from you this morning. We always need from you. And yet there are Sundays where we read the Bible, we read the text that we are in, and we are confronted. Sometimes we're not even totally sure what we're confronted with. We just know we don't like it. It's uncomfortable for us. Lord, would we uh, have a clearer and more beautiful understanding of your wrath This morning, we pray. We need your help. We pray this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. So let me go ahead and read for us. I'm I'm not going to spend a bunch of time here. If 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 you hear this, you weren't here last week. It's part of the beauty of having a website where stuff is loaded on there. If you if you if I read this first part and you're going like, whoa, wait, what? 
Like last week, we kind of dove and covered all of this. This week, I'm reading that again so you can see this is what Isaiah is responding to in our text this morning. Basically, he has a vision, and this vision starts in chapter 63, verse 1. Let me read this. I'm going to read it slowly because, again, this is kind of an intense picture. But then our text today, starting in verse 7, he responds to that. So let me read this for us. This is Isaiah 63, starting in verse 1. Who is this who comes from Edom in crimsoned garments from Basra? He who is splendid in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. It is I speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. And I'm going to just pause as we go and explain what's happening. So basically what you have is you have Isaiah who is kind of having this vision. He's seeing this this kind of mighty warrior, this guy who's got some swagger marching, looking at the greatness of his strength. He's kind of had this march about him who has these red garments on and he's coming from the south, heading toward Jerusalem. He is, he's coming from Edom, right? Coming from Basra. So he's, he's marching from the south. And Edom, just so you know, just the reason he's, this is in here is because Edom at this point in the history of Israel has become representative, right? Kind of a, a metaphor for the enemies of Israel slash the enemies of God. So whoever this person is, is marching from the territory where those that oppose God kind of metaphorically live. Okay, so that's what we have in verse one. Verse two. Uh, oh, sorry. Verse one also said, it is I speaking in righteousness, mighty to save, which is giving us the indicator. Oh, this is clearly Yahweh. This is clearly God who is, who is the one who's mighty to save as he's made abundantly clear to this point in, in Isaiah. Verse two, this is Isaiah's response as he sees this picture. Why is your apparel red? Why are your clothes red? This is a strange garment that you have on. It's splendid in, in the apparel, but it's, why is it red? And your garments like his who treads in a wine press. So not only is it red, but it seems to be red because something is spattered on it, that it's stained with something, but it's very stained because it just appears red from the distance. But now we see that it's fully red because something has been splattered on it. Verse three, I have trodden the winepress alone and from the peoples, no one was with me. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath their lifeblood spattered on my garments and stained all my apparel. We have our answer to why it's red. For the day of vengeance was in my heart and the year of redemption had come. I looked, but there was no one to help. I was appalled, but there was no one to uphold. So my own arm brought me salvation and my wrath upheld me. And then he kind of finishes out the metaphor with pristine clarity. I trampled down the peoples in my anger. I made them drunk in my wrath and I poured out their lifeblood on the earth. End of statement. So to be clear, what do we have? We have this picture of God himself because he's the only one who can do it, who is walking in a wine press. A wine press is this big vat filled with grapes that you trample on in order to spurt out and to squirt out a liquid so that you have 
a right, these crushed grapes to create grape juice, which then you turn into wine, hence a wine press. So the picture we have here is a picture of somebody coming from a wine press who has been stomping out something so that their garments have been stained red and the onlooker asking, why are your garments red? Well, we find out that what he is doing is this is God himself in righteousness, in love, and in justice, right? He is stomping on the bodies of those who have rebelled and fought against him. So that's the picture that we have here. Again, this is, this is meant to be a like, whoa, 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 whoa. What is going on here? So last week, to summarize the whole sermon, it was this. There's two ways to pay for sin. There's two ways to pay for sin. The first is clearly outlined in Isaiah 53, right? The suffering servant, which is really a summary of the gospel of Jesus Christ, which we find in the New Testament, a very clear description of how sin is paid for at the cross of Jesus. We have the what? The shedding of blood. We even have the language, he is crushed. This is in Isaiah 53. He is crushed for our iniquity. And the picture there is as if Jesus himself climbs into the wine vat and himself is crushed on our behalf to take God's wrath upon himself in order to pay for sin. Bottom line is you, me, us have sin that must be paid for. And so it's only paid for in two ways. One way is the way of Christ, which is the way that God would love to offer and does to all who hear that if you believe upon Jesus, your sin, meaning all the things you do wrong, all the things you think wrong, all the things you feel wrong, all that's wrong is dealt with in the sacrificial death of Jesus, which is good news, church, just so you know. That's the gospel, that God says, look, I'm providing payment. Here it is, turn to the payment that I'm offering. But I did say there's two ways. So, so that's the first way, which we've covered, uh, and we cover here at Valley Bible. That's why we have this cool graphic. That's our gospel graphic, because we are gospel people. We emphasize it. We preach it. You will not hear a sermon or a lesson in this church that does not talk about the sacrificial work of Jesus. It's the epicenter of the human existence and human history is the gospel of Jesus Christ. So it is the epicenter of what we do here at Valley Bible Church. So we have the, that's one way to pay for sin, but Isaiah 63 is the other. This is the other way to pay for sin. Listen, God prefers that you take the payment of the suffering servant, but if you relent and you decide you have a better idea, you will end up in this winepress of his wrath. I just want to be really clear. It's been clear for all of God's history, his proclamation, his self-revelation, that there is only two ways. There is the way of Christ, and there's every other way. And all of those ways do lead to one destination, and it's the wine press of the wrath of God. So, to be clear, that was a nice, light, fun passage from last week that we got to get into. So this week is Isaiah's response. So we kind of settled on that. I decided to just settle on that because that is not something we often talk about uh, as much as we should, I should say, in the church. So we spent some time there. How does God's people, how does Isaiah respond to that? So that's what we're getting into today. This is, so the title you'll see behind me is Response to Wrath. 
So what we see is we see three responses, three kind of ways that this unfolds. And the first we find in verse seven. Now I read some of this last week, but we're going to unpack it this week. So read with me. We're going to read verses 7 through 14. And the first response to wrath we get is hesed, which I want you to write that word. The, the transliteration of that in English is H-E-S-E-D. That is an English written, you know, transliteration of a Hebrew word, hesed. So best way to write it is S-E-S-E-D. Hesed remembered. Let's look at this. Verse 7. Read with me. This is verse 7 through 14. I will recount the hesed of the Lord the praises of the Lord, according to all that the Lord has granted us and the great goodness to the house of Israel that he has granted to them according to his compassion, according to the abundance of his chesed, his steadfast love. We have a hard way of rendering that in the English because of how robust and diverse it is. But one of the ways that that's rendered is steadfast love. Verse 8, for he said, surely they are my people, children who will not deal falsely, and he became their savior. In all their affliction, he was afflicted, and the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and in his pity, he redeemed them. He lifted them up and carried them all the days of old. But they rebelled and, he, and grieved his Holy Spirit. Therefore, he turned to be their enemy and himself fought against them. Then he remembered the days of old of Moses and his people. Where, it, where is he who brought them up out of the sea with the shepherds of his flock? Where is he who put in the midst of them his Holy Spirit, who caused his glorious arm to go out at the right hand of Moses, who divided the waters before them to make for himself an everlasting name? who led them through the depths. Like a horse in the desert, they did not stumble. Like livestock that go down into the valley, the Spirit of the Lord gave them rest. So you led your people to make for yourself a glorious name. Let's pause right there. So this is hesed remembered. Hesed remembered or hesed recounted. So basically what happens is you have Isaiah who watches this image before him of this, this crimsoned warrior, this blood-spattered warrior who comes out of the wine press. Isaiah is seeing this vision and what is his response? Which by the way, he, this is our model. This is a good model for us of how we respond when we think about the wrath of God. How does he respond when he sees the wrath of God? He immediately, again, I referenced this last week, but it's, it's striking in the Hebrew text. In verse 7, in verse 7, he immediately, after he sees verse 6, conclude with this, this startling, disturbing picture, the first word from Isaiah's pen is chesed. Where in the English he goes, I will read, no, 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 he goes chesed, like, like he sees this picture, he sees wrath, rightfully so, and he goes, uh, steadfast love. Let, let's just lead with that, Lord, steadfast love, your steadfast love. Steadfast love, Yahavah, is what the Hebrew says. So that's chesed with God's name right next to it in the Hebrew, which is really beautiful. Because what he basically is doing is what we do when we see the wrath of God. And frankly, it's hard not to see the wrath of God without thinking, eh, you, you know, I haven't been the best lately, Right? I haven't been perfect. I know my own sin. I know my own shortcomings. And so what he does is what we should do, which is we lift to God and say, Lord, remember your steadfast love. 
basically, and he outlines what that steadfast love looks like, which is kind of, a, there's, there's kind of six points of that here in this little section, which is really three couplets, right? The first thing he does, look at verse seven, is he talks about the commitment of God, right? Hesed, by definition, is kind of a committal word. It's a word of covenant. It's a word of commitment to one another. It's a word where we are expressing, God is expressing his commitment to us, right? So, so chesed often is most often associated in the Old Testament with covenant, right? That this would be something where if you're getting married, you would be expressing your chesed to someone else. You're expressing this steadfast, committed love to one another. So he is basically pleading the, the, and remembering. So this is chesed remembered has six, six different aspects to it. The first one is the committed God, right? God's commitment is the first thing that he kind of wants to remind the Lord of. So he's kind of, this is, and, and the, the voice of this is actually kind of interesting. If you look at the grammar here, he starts off by saying, I, so he kind of starts recounting. Then he goes to the plural, according to the Lord has granted us. He starts talking about God in the third person saying he, and by the time we get to the end of this, he can't really finish out this section without starting the, uh, would you Lord? You know, so you led your people. You can see he's building this section He's basically laying out some truths before God before he starts his prayer in verse uh, 15, where he's basically saying, this, this is who you are, Lord. And it's almost like he's reminding himself and reminding the people before he dives into prayer. So the first thing he wants to remind the Lord of and remind himself of is the committed God, right? So the first thing we see is commitment. So the first pair of things that we're, we see here is the committed God and the compassionate God. Look at verse 9. In all their affliction, he was afflicted, and the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and his pity, he redeemed them. He lifted them up and carried them all the days of old. So what's happening is he's looking back, and hear me, church, this is what we should do. We look back and see how God has worked because it gives us a picture and a model for how God will work and how God does work. This is one of the reasons we preach the Bible. This is one of the reasons we study the scriptures. This is one of the reasons it's so helpful is we see the committed God and we see the compassionate God. We see God, right? The picture here is the picture of the Exodus, that he sees his people, he sees their suffering, and he hears them. This is kind of very reminiscent of the early language in Exodus, where, right, where they're afflicted in slavery, he hears them. And so he, he, he's compassionate. He is, he is knowing their need. And so he, he has pity on them. He is redeeming them. But I want you to note, there's, there's a pair of truths, the committed God, the compassionate God. But then in the middle of this, there's some tension. Look at verse 10. And this is part of why this whole section is uncomfortable for us is it's not as if we just see the enemies of God and the judgment they get. Part of what happens when we see the wrath of God is two things happen in us. One is, oh gosh, this is disturbing. But the other thing that should happen for the people of God is, oh gosh, do we need this? Oh gosh, does the world need to be set right? So we want the world set right, but we see our own sin, and that's what we see in verse 10. So we see a committed God, we see a compassionate God, but in verse 10, we see a rebellious people. We see a rebellious people. So look at verse 10, but they rebelled. Now I want you to note how brief the language of rebellion is in Isaiah's first part of this. He's recounting the steadfast love of God. He had this six verse section where he's talking about the wrath of God, then he lays out 
the faithfulness of God, God's hesed love, his commitment, his compassion, and all their affliction, right? All this good stuff about God. And then he has one little phrase. It's not even an entire verse. Look at the beginning of verse 10. But they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit, right? There's like this one phrase that's kind of at the middle of this. It's, it's not quite a chiasm, but it kind of feels that way because you have a sandwich in the beginning, God's compassion and God's commitment, but then you have a rebelling people. And whenever you have a rebelling people, you have what comes next. So you have the middle sandwich. So I said three pairs here as we look at the, the, uh, the chesed remembered, the compassion of the Lord, and the commitment of the Lord. Then we have the rebellion of the people. But then when you have the people rebelling, you get the judgment of God. Look at this. But they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. So basically God was kind to them. God committed to them. And this again, if you've read the Exodus story, God delivers them out. They get into the wilderness and they go, wait a second. We have to eat like quail jerky. We wanted cheeseburgers we'd rather just go back to Egypt, right? They start kind of rebelling and turning and whining and complaining and there's all this grieving happening and they get obstinate and all this stuff. So they rebel and they grieve his Holy Spirit, but then look at how, so we have a rebelling people and then look at the second part of verse 10. Therefore, he turned to be their enemy and himself fought against them. Yikes. So here's what happens is you have a compassionate God, a committed God, a rebellious people, and then you have a judging God. God who comes in judgment to basically deal that if you're going to turn against God, then he's going to have to deal with the fact that you are turning from the created order of things. You are taking up your own ideas. You're taking on your own way. You're doing what you want to do. And as much as we have been told in our culture that, hey, that's totally fine. Do, you do you, do what you want to do. The problem with that is, is then we are working against actively God's ways and God's purposes. And so if we are going to turn against God, he is then going to be our enemy because not because he has changed, but because we have changed. So when you have a rebelling people, now you have a people who essentially become the enemies of God. So notice there's a tension here. This is our response to wrath. Right? So here he is, he wants to talk about the commitment, the compassion of God, but then he also has to be honest to say, and yet in the people of God, when we read the Bible, we see this cycle. And just to let you know, the cycle that we're talking about is the cycle that I'm describing. God's commitment. God's compassion. Human rebellion. God's righteous response to human rebellion, which is judgment, but it doesn't ever stay just that. So we have our, our first three couplets, or our first two, excuse me, couplets, our first two pairs, committed God, compassionate God, rebellious people, judging God. Third pair is a, look at look here, verse 11. Then he remembered the days of old. Where is he who brought them out of the sea with the shepherds of his flock? Where is he who put in the midst of them his Holy Spirit, who caused his glorious arm to go at the right hand of Moses, who divided the waters from among them to make for himself an everlasting name, who led them through the depths like a horse in the desert? They did not stumble like livestock that go down in the valley. The Spirit of the Lord gave them rest. So you led your people to make yourself a glorious name. So we have a Committed God, a compassionate God, a rebelling people, a judging God. And then the last pair is a giving God. Look at verse 14. It's in there a couple of times. But he gives them 
rest. So here's a God who is judging his people, but what happens is even in his judgment, he then always comes back to compassion, right? He's providing, he's giving them, he's a giving God and he's a glorious God. The second part of verse 14, all that's right there in verse 14. Like livestock, they go down into the valley. The spirit of the Lord gave them rest. So you led your people to make for yourself a glorious name. Okay, so what we just had, so let's recount. Okay, this is, this is fairly simple, right? You have a committed God, a compassionate God, a rebellious people, a judging God. That's kind of the middle tension there. And then the last part of the sandwich is a giving God, right? And a glorious God. So we have beautiful things, right? Light and lovely things on both ends. But in the middle, there's this dark tension of our sinfulness, our rebellion, coupled with the judgment of God. So that's basically Isaiah recounts, just so you know, Lord, just so you know, people, just so I remember, Isaiah writes, here is the history of God's people. If you read the book of Hosea, if you read the book of Genesis, if you read the book of any of the Old Testament prophets, kings, all of those things, we have this cycle, right? The committed God, the rebelling people, the glorious God. We just, we over and over and over, God's unrelenting commitment. Hosea is the most stark of all of them. Hosea, the whole book is about a, a, a prophet that God calls to marry a prostitute so that way the people will understand what it's like to be Yahweh. And so Hosea marries a prostitute and then she goes and continues to sleep with other men and God says, this is what it's like to be married to Israel. And that's just, that's, that's literally the metaphor. I'm not inserting any extra, that's, that's what's there. And so God says, this is what it's like to be with the people of God. Is that we keep turning, we keep turning, yet we keep seeing the kindness. So, so he lays down this format. So this is chesed remembered. And so we see this picture of what God has done in his faithfulness. Then we see chesed requested, verse 15. Verse 15, so let's do 15 through 64, 7. So this is the next section where basically he lays that out as his model of this is the historical pattern. And now we have the prayer beginning really in verse, the end of 14 where he can't even stop himself. He's starting to say, look, make for yourself a glorious name. But 15, he starts the, the requesting. Look down from heaven, this is verse 15, and see from your holy and beautiful habitation where your zeal, where are your zeal and your might, the stirring of your inner parts and your compassion are held back from me. For you are our father. Though Abraham does not know us and Israel does not acknowledge us, you, O Lord, are our father. Our redeemer from of old is your name. O Lord, why do you make us wander from your ways and harden our hearts so that we may fear you not? Return for the sake of your servants and the tribes of your heritage. Your holy people held possession for a little while. Our adversaries have trampled down your sanctuary. We have become like those over whom you have never ruled, like those who are not called by your name. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence as when fire kindles brushwood to make your name known to your adversaries and to the nations might tremble at your presence when you did awesome things that we did not look for. When you came down, the mountains quaked at your presence. From of old, no one has heard or perceived by ear. No eye has seen a God besides you who acts for those who wait for him. You meet him who joyfully works righteousness. Those who remember you in your ways. Behold, you were angry and we sinned. 
In our sins, we have been a long time, and shall we be saved? We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. There is no one who calls upon your name, who rouses himself to take hold of you, for you have hidden your face from us and have made us melt in the hand of our iniquities. You pause right there. Okay. This is an interesting response. So basically what's happening is he recounts God's hesed, his commitment to his people. And then he prays on behalf of this recounting. But what happens is he basically starts out of the gate by, by, by pleading to the, the, the first part of this, the commitment of God and the compassion of God. He is saying, you are compassionate. Look at, look at, the, look at verse 15. The stirring of your inner parts and your compassion are held back from me. He's saying, Lord, you have this compassionate part, this committed part of you. Lord, I, I'm not feeling that. So I love the tension. We get basically Isaiah's pleading with God to say, I want to experience again the things of old that I have seen, the things that I have heard. I want to see it again, Lord. I want to see this commitment and this compassion and the way in which you can redeem your people. So the problem is he's praying for that to come. He's praying. The first thing that he prays, he prays kind of two main things. The first is that God would see, that God would see. Behold, look at verse 15. Look down Look down. And then again in verse 5 of 64, behold, he's saying, would you see what's happening, Lord? Look and see what is going on. Lord, help us. Would you see our predicament? Would you see the tension we find ourselves that we are a people who desperately need you? Look at verse 17. Oh Lord, why do you make us wander from your ways and harden our heart so that we fear you not? So this is an interesting reference. So in the Exodus story, you have the little nugget in there about Pharaoh, where he says he hardened Pharaoh's heart, hardens heart, or uh, Pharaoh's heart was hardened. So what you have is you have him referencing what's happened and then saying to God, look, you have the ability, Lord, to change things. You even have the ability to affect our hearts. Would you come and do that to us? God, why are you far off? Come and help us. We are rebellious people. He basically is acknowledging and seeing that when he recounts the history of Israel, he sees, he finds himself not in the midst of a faithful people. He finds himself in the midst of a rebellious people, a people who, who kind of are doing their own thing, who don't want to hear the ways of God, which is a bad place to be when we've just seen the wrath of God. So the first thing that we see and we have God, the first thing that we pray is, God, could you see the predicament that we're in? God, see that we need help. God, see that you even have the ability to help us. Would you help us, O Lord? Look at verse uh, 19. We have become like those over whom you have never ruled, like those who are not called by your name. Hear me. When you're looking at the wrath of God and the winepress of his wrath, it is not a good thing to acknowledge yourself as one who's not been called by the name of God. You, you want to be somebody who is found in his book of life. You want to be somebody who is called by his name. You want to be somebody who is found in the covering and the presence of the suffering servant under the banner of Christ, under the banner of Yahweh. And Isaiah is acknowledging that the people don't see themselves there because of their rebellion and, their, and, their, and he's asking for help that we have turned, that we have become rebellious. 
So the first thing he's asking is that he would see, he would see the predicament that the Israelites are in where they, they, they want to change and they need to change, but they need God's help to change. So he's praying that, which is a good prayer. That's what we should be praying is, Lord, would you see the predicament that we're in? I'm reminded of Romans 7. Lord, I, I have that which I want to do, but I, I can't and, the, and I, I don't know how to do it. And there's this tension happening. Okay, so that's the first thing we pray. But then the second thing we see, look at verse 1 of 64. So he's saying, would you see, but then in verse 64, or uh, chapter 64, verse 1, he says, I want you to come. And this is interesting because he just saw God stomping out in his wrath. And so he prays that the Lord would come. And there's an interesting nuance to this prayer and this language. 64.1, oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence. This is all I, uh, um, a Deuteronomy, or excuse me, Exodus language, right? The, the 32 and 33 and 34, the Mount Zion, right? Where, or excuse me, uh, Mount Sinai. Sorry, those, those mountains, you know, we've, you know, we've been talking about Mount Zion so much. Uh, Mount Sinai. And there's this, just, you know, in the Exodus story, he says, look, don't even come near the mountain. If you touch the mountain, if you just touch it, you're going to die. Because the holiness of God has kind of taken over Sinai and, and, it's, and it's trembling and shaking and there's fire and there's lightning. There's all this picture. It's very clear, very explicit in, in, in Exodus, you know, 32, 33, 34. And so there's even a moment, which I always think is funny, where they're like, um, kind of like, hey, can, you know, God's like, hey, come talk with us. I can't remember the specific language of it, but come talk with us. So like, no, no, we don't want to talk to you face to face. We'll send Moses. That way he, he can go talk to you because we're terrified to talk to you face to face because we're gonna, afraid we're going to get struck down. So they don't go up. They send Moses as their representative. It's really, really big of them to do that, right? Because they're afraid they're going to get, they're, they're going to be in trouble. So that's the language he's pulling back on here in, on, on chapter 64. Oh, that you would come down, that the, he the mountains might quake at your presence, as when fire kindles brushwood and fire causes water to boil to make your name known to your adversaries, and that the nations might tremble at your presence, when you did awesome things that we did not look for. And you came down, the mountains quaked at your presence from of old. No one has seen or perceived by ear. No eye has seen besides, seen a God besides you, who acts for those who wait for him. So, the, so it takes a turn here. He basically sees the judgment that they deserve, and now he is pleading upon the mercy of God, saying, look, we want you to come, but Lord, we, we, we want you to come and help us. We want you to come and meet us. We want you to come, and, and we, we, we want to be those who wait for you. Lord, would you come and help? Would you come and work? Would you come in power and, and take our enemies, right? We take our enemies, and would you deal with them? Where he says this in here, look at verse Two, to make your name known to your adversaries and that the nations might tremble at your presence. Look, this is the tension we always have as we look at the wrath of God is we both want God to come and we need him to come to deal with the wrongs of this world. But we ourselves find ourselves in this tension of, I need you to deal with my enemies. But when you come to deal with my enemies, part of the problem is I see my own need for judgment. This is the constant tension of the scriptures, and this is constantly why he's always referencing back to his covenantal committed love that comes through Christ and why we need him. So, so we saw those movements in the first part, right? The committed God, the compassionate God, the rebelling people, the judging God, the giving God, and the glorious God. And now we see Isaiah praying that God would see their need, God would see what's going wrong, and that he would actually come and judge, that he would actually come and do this work of judgment, but then he finishes 
with this last part. So that's Hesed requested because he's asking them to come, but he's afraid because when God comes, he knows that they also are people who have not lived perfectly and they have problems. Look at verse 6, 64, 6. We have all become like one who is unclean and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf and our iniquities like the wind take us away. There is no one who calls upon your name who rouses himself to take hold of you for you have hidden your face from us and have made us melt in the hands of our iniquities. Okay, so let's just pause here for a second. Okay, because if, if, if you're tracking like I'm tracking, this is where you're like, okay, like I'm confused. Like, what's going on here? And, this, and this, is, this is the right question. And I think this is what's happening in Isaiah. He sees the judgment of God. He sees the need for God's judgment. He sees the need for all of the, the cancers and the sins and the things that we willfully participate in that work against God. He sees the need for those things to be dealt with. We talked about this last week, that there's part of us that's like, yes, deal with all the wrongs. When he, he says in, in chapter 25, uh, of Isaiah, where, where it's 25, 8, where he says, he will swallow up death forever, wiping away tears from all faces. Who does not hear that and go, Lord, man, come do that. Take death away. Take tears from our faces. So Isaiah sees the need. He sees God coming to accomplish that work. But then while he sees that, he also is conflicted within himself because he goes, but Lord, we have not been faithful to you. There is no one who calls upon your name, who rouses himself to take hold of you, for you have hidden your face from us and have made us melt in the hand of our iniquities. Here's what I'm getting at, church, is what we want God to see. We want God to see our need and the plight that we're in, so we pray that. We also pray for God to come and judge. But even as Isaiah is praying for God to come and to judge and to do that work, here's what we can't do. We cannot self-justify or pretend that there's not a problem. Our culture is terrible at these things. We say things like, oh, it's okay. It's okay. Like, you know, like everyone has their things. It's okay. We're not perfect. I'm doing my best. You don't hear Isaiah saying that. Uh, let me read it just one more time. I think I've read it four times. Let me read it again. There is no one who calls upon your name who rouses himself to take hold of you for you have hidden your face from us and have made us melt in the hand of our iniquities, right? He is, he is pointing the blame like, hey, we, we are not upholding our end, Lord. And we acknowledge that. There's no one who calls upon your name. So here's what I want to get at, church. When we look at who God is, we don't want to be people who sit there and just go, well, it's, it's fine. It's fine. God's a God of love. And so, you know, I know I'm doing all this terrible stuff, but it's fine. It's fine. We want to get uncomfortable with that. Our sin should make us a little uncomfortable or a lot uncomfortable. Because when we read the scriptures, we see that, that, that the, the suffering servant does come to deal with sin, that Jesus on the cross, right, his blood poured out, washes us away. He, he, he makes the unclean clean. Like this is the gospel. This is what he does, that we watch the gospel narratives. Jesus comes and makes the unclean clean. That's what he does. And we want to celebrate that. But what we do as a, as, a, as a people who grew up in Southwest Virginia, who hear the teachings of God, who hear the teachings of scripture, what we can do is minimize and say, you know, it's not that bad. My stuff is just not that bad. We can't do this. Isaiah does not do this. Isaiah says, Lord, it's bad. We don't seek you. We've become like those who, who, who've not been called by your name. 
We become like those who you've never ruled. We look like people who don't, who've never even heard of you. Like, 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 you know, if you, you call us a Christian or if you call us an Israelite, and if you look, you'd go, those guys? Like those guys. Yeah, that's, that's who we've become. That's who we have become, church. We, we often become that. So here's what Isaiah doesn't do, which I love. He doesn't necessarily resolve the tension for us, especially this week. But he doesn't justify his own sin, meaning he doesn't make excuses for it. He doesn't minimize it and go, oh, it's not a big deal. He says, yeah, it's a problem. We want you to come, Lord, but as I'm praying for you to come, I realize you also have to take care of sin, and I'm committing sin. So hear me. I'm not saying you guys have a problem. I'm saying I also have a problem. Now, again, Jesus, we know, deals with sin. So those of us who believed upon Christ, we get the covering of the gospel, but that does not mean that we minimize the damage that sin can cause even as we continue to operate in it. Because listen, as Christians, you're going to choose to sin at times. But it's still poison to your soul. It's still, it's still bad for you. And yet we will say things like, well, God loves me. So it's okay. God does love you. And Jesus washes your sin, but it's not okay that we persist in sin because it's bad for you and it's bad for the world and it's bad for the glory of God. And so we don't see Isaiah justifying the sin of the people by saying like, oh, it's fine. We're forgiven. We see him saying, Lord, would you come and judge? But you can see Isaiah's discomfort in verses 5 and 6 and 7. So, Hesed requested is, Lord, would you see? Hesed requested is, Lord, would you come judge? Interesting that, that he wants God to come down and shake the mountains in his judgment. He wants God to, to set things right. This should be our prayer of our hearts. Lord, could you make things right? And so another way of saying this is, is if Jesus walks through those doors right now and goes, hey guys, wrap it up. Let's go. Like turn off the mics. We don't need those anymore. I'm here. Are we going to go, oh, that was today? Um, mm. Yeah, could you, could you hold that, Jesus? I got some stuff to take care of. Or are we going like, yeah, come Lord Jesus. And here's, here's all the sin that I need to confess because I, I've not been walking the way that I, I want to walk. Okay, so note the end of that prayer is messy. I didn't necessarily give like a nice clear landing there because Isaiah doesn't. This is one of the things when we preach the Bible, there's times you're like, okay, that's how he, that's how he ends. That, huh. Stops there in verse 7, and then we have a little break. So we have Hesed remembered, we have Hesed requested, and now we have Hesed practiced. So this is where Isaiah lands. This is where his landing place, which I want to just say out the gate, I don't like. <laughs> right? Like if we're reading the Bible, I'm going like, well, that's how you end your prayer, Isaiah? Come on. Land the plane for us, man. So let's read the last section here. This is Hesed practice, verses 8 through 12. But now, so he has laid all this out. The Lord's been listening. There's been some meandering in there, I think, and he's some tension in there. Come, Lord, judge, but we haven't walked with you like we should. And then he says this in verse 8. But now, O Lord, you are our Father. Even referencing verse 16 from 63. We are the clay, and you are our potter. We are all the work of your hand. Be not so terribly angry, O Lord, and remember not iniquity forever. Behold, please look, we are all your people. 
Your cities have become a wilderness. Zion has become a wilderness. Jerusalem, a desolation. Our holy and beautiful house where our fathers praised you has been burned by fire and all of our pleasant places have become ruins. Will you restrain yourself at these things, O Lord? Will you keep silent and afflict us so terribly? That's the end of the word of the Lord this morning. So we get God's response next week where God kind of goes back and forth. But, but I want you to hear Isaiah's prayer. Do you hear the messiness of it? He's both saying, come and judge, but yeah, we haven't really done what we should be doing. Look at verse 9. Be not so terribly angry, O Lord, and remember not iniquity forever. Behold, please look, we are all your people. So the first thing I want to express to you that Hesed practiced, the first thing that Hesed practiced produces, or the first thing that Hesed practiced looks like is openness. Openness. You have Isaiah just, just laying it out. Remember not iniquity forever. He is, not, he is saying, Lord, I, I get it. I've, I, I have done things that need to be dealt with. Lord, remember not iniquity forever. He is confessing his sin. How good are you at owning and confessing your sin? How good are you at owning and confessing your sin? Just something to think about. Like if somebody said, hey man, see some stuff in your life. Are you like, yo bro, what, what's the deal? You have problems too, man. Or do you go, yeah, man, thank you. Can you walk with me and maybe how that's affecting you and let's walk together? How good are you at owning and confessing your sin? So openness, which then leads to the second practice of Hesed, which is confession. Openness, which means a receptivity to you being wrong, to needing help, to your weakness, to your sin. See, I love how, how he says, Lord, you have the ability to harden our hearts and to, and to affect and move us but we also are responsible for our sin. So that tension we have about human free will and the sovereignty of God, uh, Isaiah, is just, he just lays it out there. It doesn't even address it. He's just like, yep, that, yep, God is sovereign. Yep, he can harden your heart, absolutely. And we, man, we are sinners. Woo, we're sinners. Got real problems. You're like, okay, Isaiah, but could you write a theological treatise on like how those, and he goes, nope, we're gonna go to prayer. Right, he leaves that tension out there where we have the sovereignty of God, where God is in control of all of history, and we have the responsibility of man, where we are judged for our actions, and somehow these two things come together and overlap, and God is inviting us to rest in him in the midst of all of that. Openness, confession, and the last thing is waiting. Waiting. Where you have Isaiah, who is here laying before his God, his needs, his request, and saying, Lord, come, work. He is basically giving all of his arguments. Lord, you, the, the temple is in ruins. The people are in ruins. We, your name is in ruins because of how we've lived. Lord, come help us. Will you restrain yourself at these things, O oh Lord? Will you keep silent and afflict us so terribly? He sits there and he waits. Lord, what are you going to do? The ministry of the believer is a ministry of waiting. We must wait on him. And this is frustrating work at times. Lord, what do I do? And often the answer is wait. Wait. So we'll deal with God's response next week. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, 
What a strange text this morning. Last week was pristinely clear on your judgment and your wrath, that there's two ways to pay for sin, and that one of them is Christ and one of them is your wrath. And that's really clear. It's uncomfortable, but it's clear. This week we see Isaiah's response, and it's like, man, he's torn. He's laboring and struggling and wrestling, and yet, Lord, he is crying out to you. He is practicing hesed. He is, he is realizing and remembering that you are committed to him and to your people. And so he is crying out to you for help while also expressing his own need and the need of the people. Lord, remember not iniquity forever. Lord, would you help us to wait for you for that day when you come and, and when you will wipe away every tear from every eye. And you'll take care of injustice. You will set things right. Help us to wait for you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.